0: Welcome to Kernels of Nutrition, the brand new podcast series powered by the Almond Board of California. My name is Rosie Long. I'm an AFN registered associate nutritionist. And in this series, I'll be chatting to some of the leading nutrition professionals in the UK about their experiences and how they successfully communicate health and nutrition messages through the work they do with brands, the media, and more recently on social media too. This podcast is part of the Almond Board of California's Almond Academy. A learning and development platform developed by health professionals to help other nutritionists and dietitians advance and refine their existing skills. Visit almonds.co.uk to listen to other podcasts in the series, sign up to the Almond Boards Nutrition Bulletin and access all other Almond Academy resources. With me today is registered nutritionist, Claire Baisley, who joins us to talk about how we, as health professionals, can navigate EU health claims in our communications to the public. Claire has worked for the Food Standard Agency and then with the food industry for many years, building up an in-depth experience in a number of areas, including food regulations and marketing. Claire now runs a successful nutrition consultancy, CLB Nutrition Limited, offering a wide range of services for the food industry, individuals, families, and the media. Hello, Claire. Firstly, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your experience on this topic?
1: Hi, Rosie. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me to talk on your podcast series. Uh, I'm an AFN registered industry nutritionist. I'm also a freelance consultant with 20 years experience in regulatory and commercial environments. I hate saying 20 years. It makes me sound so old. Um, My role has often required me to act as that kind of go-between, aligning often quite cautious regulatory teams with more commercial teams um, that are keen to develop the most motivating claims to market their products to consumers effectively. So I've not only developed a deep understanding of the nutrition and health claims legislation and enforcement, but also a more pragmatic and commercial approach to ensure that the advice I'm giving to businesses is legal, but still motivating.
0: Oh, amazing. And I, I think it's something that's so needed. Um, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners can probably relate to being that kind of that middleman and, and, and especially if they work within the industry. So um, I guess the first question to start off with is, is, can you
1: give us an overview of the types of claims that are permitted? Sure. So there's lots of different types of claims. Simplest are the nutrition claims, and they're merely stating that a significant amount of a nutrient is present, or that a food contains a low or reduced level of that nutrient. So, for example, I'll use almonds. Um, They're a source of fibre, but they're also low in salt. So those nutrition claims have conditions of use that must be fulfilled if the claim is to be legal. So, for fibre, for example, you. have to supply at least three grams per 100 grams um, to be low in salt you need to be under 0.3 grams per 100 grams and all of the uh, conditions of use will vary from one nutrient to another
0: yeah and then when it comes to so there's i know there's other types of of claims that can be used as well so um, what's kind of the difference then between a nutrient claim and then a health claim it's quite confusing
1: i think Health claims relate the presence of a nutrient to a functional benefit or positive health outcome. They might be about growth and bodily functions. Using almonds as an example again, almonds are a source of magnesium which contributes to normal muscle function. That would be a health claim. Um, They can be related to psychological function. So iodine contributes to normal cognitive function, or they can be related to weight management or satiety. So, for example, substituting two daily meals of an energy restricted diet with meal replacements contributes to weight loss. You can see that the claim wording is is often quite a mouthful. And I think we'll talk about that a bit later. There are different types of health claims. So some relate um, specifically to child health. Uh, So iodine contributes to normal growth of children. Uh, They might be disease risk reduction claims. So for example, oat beta-glucan has been shown to lower or reduce blood cholesterol, High cholesterol is a a risk factor for the development of coronary heart disease. You can't have one without the other. And we'll talk about uh, conditions of use uh, quite a bit. But um, you have to make sure that you are stating all of that claim wording when you're making a health claim, particularly if it's about disease risk reduction. So in all these cases, there will be very strict conditions of use. Um, that state the levels of nutrients that are required in foods to fulfill um, that claim and and make it legal. Um, There may also be additional information that you have to provide to consumers, um, warnings or um, sort of general labeling requirements. Um, So examples might be advice to the public that they should consume a healthy diet and lead a balanced lifestyle. That has to accompany any health claim that you're making. Now, obviously, this feels really onerous and there are lots of brands that I've worked with and just said, this is a nightmare. Do we have to do this? You know, what's the point? It's it's really annoying. It's it's hampering our commercial progress. Um, Yes, it does feel quite onerous and it can um, be disadvantageous commercially however the intention is to protect the consumer from being misled by factually inaccurate marketing information Um, and if all of the companies complied we would have a level playing field and it would be a much better place from a public understanding perspective but as we'll see um, there isn't necessarily a level playing field.
0: Yeah no I know exactly Um, and you know we often hear about more general health claims as well um, can you explain a little bit about what that
1: means general health claims i see a lot and there is really a lack of understanding of, of what is a general health claim and and what you have to do to substantiate it so a general health claim is less specific so examples would be good for you full of good, goodness Healthy. It might even be the brand name itself that constitutes uh, a general health claim. If, if a brand is, is called Oh My Goodness or something like that, then the brand name itself could be uh, a general health claim. So they are permitted, but you have to support them with a relevant, specific, and legal health claim. So, an example would be uh, a jar, jar of almond butter that could claim to be full of goodness or claim to be healthy in some way it would need to then display an authorized health claim, something like almonds provide a source of magnesium, which might help to reduce uh, tiredness and fatigue. So uh, an authorized health claim uh, that's that's relevant to the consumer.
0: Mm, uh, I can imagine that being quite, quite an important thing when you're doing kind of new product development work and stuff like that. Um, and as health professionals, obviously we should all be aware of health and nutrition claims. And especially if we work in the food industry, um, what do most health, health
1: professionals seem to get wrong when dealing with health claims? Whenever I do talks, I always talk about health professionals and working with brands and how they should not endorse a product that makes health claims. And there's always this sharp intake of breath. And so it's something that I think there just isn't the awareness of amongst HCPs. So when working with brands publicly, health professionals have to understand that they cannot endorse products that are making health claims. And the key here is to understand what an endorsement is. It's not just saying, I recommend this product. Um, It could also include a social media post on the healthcare professional's own channels uh, or on the brand's channels where the health professional is is named and depicted, where the product that makes health claims on its packaging is pictured. So if it's their social media post, they're picturing on Instagram, for example, the product with the health claims on front of pack that's, that's depicted in the picture. And then they're mentioning those health claims in the post. That constitutes an endorsement, even if you're not saying I recommend this product. Um, Alternatively, the health professional could be writing a blog on general health um, on behalf of that brand. But if that blog is posted next to pictures of the product that has health claims on it, or the company branding is is alongside that blog, um, and if the health professional is pictured or named within that blog, again, this would constitute an endorsement And so it's not permitted under the legislation so my advice would be if you're working with brands as a health professional whether you're a dietitian nutritionist nutritional therapist doctor for example just stick to mentioning nutrition claims be careful not to show or be pictured next to any packaging or other marketing materials that are depicting health claims And even if you're working with a brand that makes no claims um, or is only making nutrition claims, you do also need to check with your regulator's code of conduct about how you make brand endorsements. Um, So, for example, you might need to state that other brands are available or you might need to speak more generically um, about product categories uh, than the brand itself. So do check your own regulators rules as well. My final point here is an important one, particularly for the Almond Board. Trade associations and food boards are not within the scope of the legislation generally. As long as the content that's being shared is completely unbranded, then trade associations and food boards like the Almond boards don't fall under that legislation. So the Almond Board's website and communications are not branded with any individual company's logos. The consumer can't see individual products or visit the individual brands' websites um, to buy those products or see company marketing materials. So in cases where health professionals are working for such associations, um, as long as they're being evidence-based and using approved health claims, that's absolutely fine because the communications are not commercial, they're not being used to sell a product. So it's it's where the context is commercial that the legislation then kicks in.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, and I think that's it's so important to know that and, um, it's, you know, that was news to me um, when, when we talked about it. And um, I think a lot of us are going by what feels ethically right a lot of the time and what's in the evidence base. So to have that kind of knowledge in our back pocket is, is really, really important, because just because a health claim is approved doesn't necessarily mean we can use it in a, in a public context. And I, I think that's um, really interesting. Um, and I think the thing about health claims is it can be quite confusing and mm-hmm. you know there's there's times when um, things have gone wrong and there's examples of when it's gone wrong So for example if you use an un- unauthorized health claim um, so what's the potential impact to a consumer if a false health claim is made?
1: I think that's a really important point to make because you know brands want to sell their products um, but as health professionals we're about, helping brands to sell those products, but making sure that the customer is not being misled and that the sound science is being communicated. So I think one of the biggest risks of false health claims being in the market, in the environment, is that the consumer is misled into buying a product that they don't need or want because they've seen this, this health claim that's either uh, an exaggeration, an overstatement of the claim wording. So for example, claiming that a nutrient is vital or essential for healthy bones rather than a nutrient contributes to normal bones, which is the approved claim wording. Um, that That's a lot more motivating. And, and there was some... Um, uh, research that was shared on a, a british nutrition foundation podcast recently um a webinar i think it was talking about how consumers found things like vital and essential and healthy a lot more motivating which of course they do that's why brands want to use them but that's not the authorized claim wording um, obviously using an Unauthorized claim um, is, is almost worse because then it, you know it's completely beyond the evidence base. So You know, I think we all get really vexed about the existence of diet pills, metabolism boosting, um, you know, revving up your metabolism diet pills that claim to uh, promote dramatic weight loss, which we know is is bunkum. And and there's really no science behind it. But these sort of claims are being used to market, particularly sports, nutrition and diet products. The other area is that uh, a false health claim might provoke fear in the consumer that their health might be affected by not consuming that product. Um, And so they feel they have to buy it out of fear. or brands could be implying that a healthy, balanced diet is not enough to support health. Again, this is, this is not just misleading the consumer, but it's really unethical because you, you're sort of really playing to their emotions, particularly people who are maybe quite vulnerable because they're suffering from illnesses, for example. So, you know, you go beyond just uh, breaking the legislation and the requirements of it, um, but it, it becomes quite an unethical practice.
0: Mm, yeah, and it's so, so important for us to to protect the consumers, as you, as you said there. Um, but, you know, let's say a health professional is involved in a campaign that has made false claims. What's the potential damage to the health professional?
1: It's a really good point. Um, so ultimately, it's the brand's responsibility to ensure that its communications are compliant with all the legal requirements. However, Um, If the healthcare professional has provided incorrect advice, the brand may, uh, if they're challenged, take action against the health professional. Um, I don't, in my experience, find this is often the case. Uh, It's more frequent that brands will ignore the advice of health professionals and progress with making claims that aren't authorized either um, they're exaggerating or they're using unauthorized claims Um, and this is often because the rest of the category are doing the same and the brand fears that commercially they just won't be on a level playing field Um, and i see this a lot with uh, adaptogens and and the um nootropic Um, herbal extracts and things like that. There's there's just so many brands out there making these claims that aren't authorised. And if you go out there with a product that's just making authorised claims or not making any claims at all, you really are at a competitive disadvantage. Um, So I think under those circumstances, um, if you're a health professional, there is reputational risk to the individual, um, particularly if they're publicly involved with the brand in some way. So my advice under these circumstances would be to ensure that the recommendations are made in writing, um, get it, you know, made in writing, save your emails, you know, make sure it's all down uh, in writing. And then ideally that the brand will communicate back in writing that they intend to overlook that advice. That's the best way to protect yourself.
0: Mm, yeah, that's really good advice because I think it, it could, you know, stay with you for a long time if, if that kind of was to come out and you hadn't protected yourself um, and the advice that you've given to the brand. Um, so kind of moving on a little bit, do you think that health claims are helpful in helping people make good dietary choices? Because I think we've spoken a lot about protecting the consumer and, and
1: you know, all the language that's used. Are, are they useful? I think they are useful in terms of avoiding the consumer being misled. Before we had the nutrition and health claims legislation, brands could pretty much say anything and and promise the world. I mean, you know, not just... Um, you know, stopping you from getting cancer. But, you know, this product will give you a better sex life. You'll be happier. You'll be cleverer. You know, you look at some countries where they don't have the same level of legislation um, and there are products being sold to children saying your child's IQ will be higher. They'll be brainier. They'll grow up stronger or whatever, you know, and you just think it's not possible, you know, with all the evidence in the world to make those kind of claims. So having this filter on the claims that can be used, I think does avoid the consumer being misled in theory um, because there's supposedly a level playing field. However, enforcement is so patchy. um, Resources are very restricted, particularly within trading standards. So in reality, there's not a level playing field. There are many brands making misleading claims um, and even legal claims can be made in a a misleading context. Um, And one of my real hobby horses around vitamin C. So vitamin C supports a normal immune function and that's an authorized claim, but there is almost no evidence of vitamin C deficiency in the UK population. People are not walking around with scurvy in the UK taking additional sources of vitamin C won't suddenly turbocharge your immune system. It's not going to prevent COVID. You're seeing all of these brands coming out with immune function claims because they've got a source of vitamin C in, but they're not going to stop you getting sick. They're just going to support a normal immune system. And ultimately you're already getting enough vitamin C if you eat a reasonably varied diet. Potatoes are a great source of vitamin C and most people in this country are eating potatoes. Um, So, you know, brands can be using these claims legally, but it's not necessarily ethical. And and I often say just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, And I think my my final bugbear about health claims is the authorized claim wording is really sciencey. It's not very accessible to the public. It's not very motivating.
0: Yeah and I I completely agree with that I mean that's something that is it's really hard to kind of deal with when you're in a sort of marketing communications type position because yeah as you say normal function of the immune system doesn't sound particularly interesting to the consumer and that's quite hard Um, but I think uh, you kind of touched on the, the kind of health halo effect of certain health claims there and and obviously you mentioned vitamin c which you know probably where they're using that health halo to sell but health claims can be used as a motivator as you said for consumers to eat more healthier foods mm-hmm. um so you know if we take the concept of of energy i think it can be used in a way that's quite deceptive to a consumer but also, it can be used as a, as a really good motivator. So if we're talking about an energy boosting drink, for example, with added nutrients, they may be able to claim that it reduces tiredness and fatigue with those added nutrients. But it's probably a marketing ploy. They're doing it to sell and it's, it's legal. But as you said, deceptive, whereas healthy foods. So almonds can also bear the claim. Um, they're a high source of magnesium, so can reduce the um, reduce tiredness and fatigue. So as all almonds also provide healthy fat, fiber, protein, isn't it a lot more ethical to promote the nutrient benefits associated with eating these foods than kind of the other types of foods they have out there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there are, there are two issues here. So firstly, at the moment, there is no filter on what products can make health claims as long as they're fulfilling the conditions of use related to the claim, they can use it. So even if the product itself is less healthy, they can still put those claims on. So for example, where you talk about the sort of high sugar drinks that have maybe got some added B vitamins that support energy release. Yes, it's legal, but realistically, you're probably going to get an energy boost from drinking a sugary drink, which isn't necessarily the best thing for you. Um, So there's there's no filter on on who can use a claim as long as the conditions of use are met. Um, So like you say, almonds can help to reduce tiredness tiredness and fatigue by being a source of magnesium, but they are also a healthier option. a high sugar breakfast cereal fortified with magnesium could say exactly the same thing. And there's no distinction between the two. And this isn't a debate about healthier and less healthy foods. All of them have a place in a balanced diet. Um, But when the legislation was published, initially there was a proposal that only those foods that passed a nutrient profile model would be allowed to make health claims. Now unfortunately at a European level this model has never been agreed because there were so many debates particularly about things like cheese or nuts for example which are high in fats but generally quite healthy foods and it's very hard to create an algorithm that, that filters in all of those kind of foods and filters out the foods that you don't necessarily want to be in there. Um, however, and I know we're gonna talk about Brexit in a minute, we know that in the UK, we do have a nutrient profile model. It's It's been revamped and is, is under consultation at the moment. The, the, the consultation responses are being considered. So it may be that post-Brexit, we are able to introduce that filter such that only products that pass the nutrient profile model will be permitted to use health claims. Uh, and I think that will go some way to levelling the playing field as long as brands comply. Um, the second point I want to make here is, is in regard to making authorised health claims that relate to nutrients in which the population is not deficient. So I talked about the vitamin C example. Um, you could argue the same goes for some of the B vitamins um, and the energy release. Or You see lots of um, smoothies and, and juice products making claims about um, vitamin C, vitamin A, for example, and how they're energised and you've got all these sort of nebulous words like energize vitalize revitalize and that and that kind of stuff which doesn't really mean a great deal Uh, but you can usually get a claim for vitamin c or or vitamin a for example so much as this is legal it's still potentially misleading so it is a bit of a bugbear of mine
0: yeah no I, i i get that and i think um I think it doesn't help that the vitamin C one, it's what consumers know. They know about vitamin C, whereas if you talk about zinc, people might not understand necessarily as much. So um, it's it's a bit of a hard one. Um, But if there was one thing you could change about claims language, what would it be?
1: (laughs) Get EFSA to work with some marketers before they start to put this claim wording together. I mean, you know, they do a sterling job of reviewing all these huge dossiers of evidence and making the claim wording scientifically accurate. But you do have to stick to it fairly strictly. You can't exaggerate, you can't you know you can't substitute normal for healthy. So like normal immune system cannot be translated into immune boosting, for example. Um, you can only make really minor changes that don't alter or exaggerate the meaning of the claims. Um, and the problem is that the wording is not motivating. We know it's not motivating when we consumer test it, and it's also not always understandable to consumers, like you said. So, you know, how meaningful is vitamin C contributes to the protection of cells from oxidative stress? Go and stand in the street and ask somebody what oxidative stress means to them, and I mean, you'll you'll get replies, but they won't be accurate. Um, And unfortunately, brands who've equated oxidative stress or the protection of cells from oxidative stress with the term antioxidant have fallen foul of the Advertising Standards Authority. So ASA rulings have shown that the term antioxidant is not an acceptable substitute for protection of cells from um, oxidative stress, even though it might be more meaningful to the consumer. So uh, for me, there's a very long-winded way of saying it would be a great idea if marketers and the FSA evaluation teams could work together to create more consumer-friendly wording that still reflects the evidence. So I, I, you know, I think they need to work and consumer test some of the claim wordings. So we get to something that balances evidence base with you know, consumer understanding and, and motivating claims.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a that's part of the reason that brands often turn to nutritionists and dieticians to do some of their communicating. Um, you know, we're, we're very good at taking the science and translating it into something that consumers understand. So, you know, it it makes sense. But obviously, when we come when we're talking about claims and things, it's a very complex topic. And there's so many rules. And I think it is quite daunting for health professionals. Um, I know that most of us don't get any formal training on it um especially not in university and if there was I definitely missed that lecture um I can't remember any any teachings of that um but you know within my role I need to be well versed in in claims that's something I do every day and the one thing I do is is I, I keep the EU register of nutrition health claims bookmarked that is always there I can access it really easily and I've kind of got used to it and I work with it quite easily um but what other resources are there for nutritionists and dietitians who need to kind of upskill in this area
1: mm, yeah i mean i i lecture at some universities but a handful um and i do like an hours lecture which is more just Sort of make sure that you're aware of this because there's there's only so much you can you can do in an hour but I've developed a webinar series that is endorsed for CPD by the Association for nutrition and it's all about nutrition and health claims specifically aimed at nutrition professionals or small brands um, small to medium-sized brands um, and I go really in-depth into the legislation um, with case studies practical examples of how to make claims legally as well as how to work publicly with brands uh, so it's on- on my website which is um, wwwclairebaselycouk forward slash webinars um and yeah you, there's courses sort of four or five times a year um so you can go there and have a look um oh. you want a book
0: yeah, thank you. That's amazing, Claire. And we'll pop that in the show notes so people can definitely check that out. Um, and you know, f- one final big question from me. Um, obviously we, we mentioned Brexit briefly, and in the UK we currently use our EFSA regulations, but with Brexit, and obviously the talks are kind of ongoing now. Do you think that there's an opportunity for the UK to adopt its own set of health claims guidelines and um If so, what do you think needs to be included or discarded?
1: So post Brexit, there's going to be some divergence. Initially, we will be using the EU law. Um, I don't think it's sort of top of the list for things that need to be done in in January. (laughs) Um, So we will continue to use uh, EU law. But post-Brexit, the UK has appointed its own committee that considers newly um, submitted dossiers of evidence. um, So for new claim applications in the future, there may be a time where a claim is approved in the UK, but not in Europe or vice versa. So that could create issues for for commerce. Um, The UK will also be in. It's own, you know, will have its own powers to change labeling legislation. So they might mandate the labeling of free sugars on front of pack um, or back of pack. They might mandate front of pack nutritional labeling or traffic lights. Um, they may require products that make claims to pass the nutrient Uh, profile model Uh, and I think all of these will be really positive moves for the consumer but it does introduce another layer of complexity um, and also packaging update costs for manufacturers so you have to bear that in mind. I know that the Department of Health uh, are working on some new guidance notes um, for enforcing um, and implementing the nutrition and health claims legislation because they created guidance in 2011 and things have moved on a lot, particularly when it comes to PR and social media, so I would welcome more detailed guidance on what nutrition professionals can and can't do when working publicly with brands, particularly on social media and PR, because, you know, the world has really moved on. Um, and I have fed, fed that back to the Department of Health because it's so important. I get asked so many questions and, you know, I, I, I've i emailed um, people who, who work uh, in government departments before and said, you know, I've got all of these questions and, you know, you can't always get a black and white answer and 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 they will say well you know you would have to refer to a court of law and you just think when you're about to work with a brand you're not going to go find a judge and ask them <laughs> and oh, they no. probably go what uh, so it, it, you know it's it's difficult we do need a lot more practical advice I always are on the side of caution um, because I think we have to protect ourselves and we have to protect the, the, the brands that we work with um, but I would welcome more um, In-depth and detailed advice on what health professionals can do when working with brands publicly.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think having it in sort of clear, easy to understand guidance is is really important as well. Because when you look at when you look at the, some of the documents, I I get tripped over with mm-hmm. just the language they use, and it's kind of a bit legal speak. And and if you've not been used to reading that kind of stuff, it, it can be confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you so much, Claire. That was it was brilliant, fascinating, um, and something that's so, so important as well. And I, I really hope it helps our listeners um to kind of just ease their way into health claims and kind of get a handle on it. Um to finish, I'd like to ask you a few more questions so just to offer some of our listeners the key nuggets of wisdom from you um so the first one is what's the best advice you've been given so this can be something professional personal um something that's helped you in your life i suppose
1: this is where i get really zen um for me comparison is the thief of joy it works across many aspects of my life but comparing myself professionally to others particularly when you're seeing only a curated social media platform is rarely good for mental health. Um, So I try to keep the focus on myself and my own career goals, swim in my own lane, you know, do things the way I feel comfortable with doing them and not worry about what others are doing. Um, That's been something I've, I've learned through experience.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good piece of advice, and I think we could all probably take from that. I know I know I, I sometimes fall into that trap as well. Um, uh, second is what's the most valuable tool to have as a nutritionist or dietitian?
1: I initially I started thinking about sort of recipe analysis software and and things like that. I thought that's really boring. Um, so I would I would say it's again a bit more zen, but an enduring curiosity and an ego that you keep in check. I think we all, however good a scientist we are, we all have a little bit of bias. Um, We all have our preferred narratives. Uh, Hopefully they're all evidence-based ones, but I think it's important to remain curious, read articles that contradict our understanding of a subject and be willing to change our view in light of new evidence. That is the sign of a good scientist. Um, And, you know, I think it's easy to get swayed by um, one piece of research. Um, And I think, you know, the more experience that you have, the more you look at the consensus, but the more you are willing to change your view if the consensus of evidence points to it.
0: Yeah, brilliant. And I think that that again can be be used in everyday life and talking about echo chambers and things Mm. like that as well. Um, But finally, what's your favorite way to eat almonds?
1: So I really love almond butter and it's great spread on slices of apple um, and I add it to smoothies most days. So I often have a breakfast smoothie and I love a bit of just slightly salted almond butter. It just gives a really nice sort of flavour profile to a smoothie.
0: Oh, lovely. Thank you so much, Claire, for being my guest on this episode of Kernels of Nutrition. All other podcasts in the series can be found at almonds.co.uk and by searching Kernels of Nutrition on your chosen podcast app. This series is available across all podcast providers, including Spotify, Apple, Google, and Acast. Subscribe and follow to get a notification when the latest episode is out.